0: Welcome to Cooking the Books. I'm Vanessa, your host, and I'm glad you're here. Hello, and welcome back. I would say that I hope everyone is well and safe, but obviously we are not well, and many of us are not safe. This has been a terrible few days of civil unrest, protests, looting, and worst of all, the murder of an African-American man, which has horrifyingly become much too commonplace in our country. Racism is alive and well and seems to be running rampant, and this both hurts my heart and makes me so angry. I hope and I pray that these terrible deaths finally open the eyes of so many who don't see the ugliness and the blight on us as human beings. I don't have that much hope, though. You would think that living in the year 2020, with all the technology and advances in science and health, that things like viruses and hatred and race wars would be eliminated. But sadly, these things are part of the human experience because they are created by human beings. Human beings have so much potential to be great, to be better, to evolve, and yet so many times we fail and revert to the base side of our humanity. We can do better. We should do better. We need to do better, if we're not ourselves, then the future generations who will come after us. Anyway, I needed to say that, and now we'll get on to today's book and food recipe. The book I'm focusing on today is set in medieval Italy, the 14th century, during a time of great religious and political unrest, upheaval, and murder. So, in a sense, it ties in what is happening around us today. The Name of the Rose is perhaps my all-time favorite book in the world, and that's saying something because I love many books, and I've read many books over and over again. In fact, I think I've actually read The Name of the Rose at least 15 times, and I find something new in it each time. To say this book is my ultimate favorite is an understatement. I first read it in my 20s and was just absolutely blown away at the mixture of philosophy, medieval history, and the detective story at its heart. And, much like the Labyrinth Library, navigated by Brother William of Baskerville and Adzo of Melk, the two main characters, the tale twists and turns upon itself and wanders off into unexpected directions, turns some dark corners, and we run across the occasional literary red herring. And then, you think about it this way, it takes a truly talented writer to make a 500-plus page novel about medieval monks in the extremely complex and dense history of the medieval Catholic Church into something compulsively readable. But oh my goodness, it is. The author, Umberto Eco, died in 2016 and left a huge void in the academic and literary worlds. He was a world-renowned professor of semiotics at the University of Bologna in Italy, and one of my favorite writers in the world. I still remember reading the news of his death. It felt like a personal loss, so personal, just hearing about his passing and then realizing that his prose and his thought process are now gone from the world. He had a huge influence on the things that I read and the way I write. I mean... If a writer can make a reader question her worldview and analyze things around her that she would normally not even think of, Echo did that to my life with this book. It's a book about books, about libraries, about labyrinths and puzzles, about the history of the Catholic Church, and about the qualities of human nature that do not change over time. Love, desire, betrayal, greed, and that attitude of imposing your beliefs onto the world weave like fine golden strands through the pages of this book. Can you tell how much I love it? (laughs) The Name of the Rose is a labyrinth of a story. It is a tale within a tale inside another tale. The basic premise is this, Brother William of Baskerville and has a young apprentice monk, Adso of Melk, come to an abbey, which remains famously unnamed, in the Italian countryside around the year 1322. There has been a mysterious death of one of the monks there, and the abbot has called upon William's expertise to help. And yes, if you're thinking, hey, Baskerville? The Hound of the Baskervilles? Sherlock Holmes? Bingo, you'd be right. This book plays clever homage to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, with Adso playing the role of Dr. Watson with a monk's tanger. It's great fun. One of the things I love about this book is just the linguistic structure of it. There is Latin strategically scattered throughout this book, as well as some other obscure languages, which just adds to its density. Now, I spent many years in Catholic school. God help me. And I have a fair understanding of Latin, but hell no was I able to even attempt to translate these passages. The book weaves together very effortlessly the threads of mystery, philosophy, theology, economics, politics, forbidden love, the nature of God himself, and the simple joys of reading, all mixed together in a labyrinth that mirrors the labyrinth at the heart of the abbey itself and the labyrinth that this book truly is. To me, the great beauty of The Name of the Rose is that it can be read in so many different ways, and you'll find something new in each subsequent reading. Murder mystery, yes, but it is also a treatise on theology and religion. It's a historical novel detailing the evolution of the Catholic Franciscan Brotherhood and the role of the Inquisition. It's a detailed portrait of day-to-day life in a medieval abbey. It's an overview of the philosophy that dominated the European Middle Ages. And ultimately, reflective of the labyrinth at its heart, the reader doesn't end up with a tidy final meaning. The name of the rose as a whole can be understood on many, many levels, and that is the joy and the beauty of it. (laughs) But please don't think that it's a dry academic book, because it most certainly is not. Those monks are a crazy bunch of so called celibates, that's for sure. You've got the head monk, the head, excuse me, the head librarian, Malachi, who is clearly hiding something by not allowing anyone into the heart of the labyrinthian library. There's Severinus, the doctor monk, who sure knows an awful lot about poisons. There's Jorge of Burgos, the old blind Spanish monk who slinks silently through the abbey and scares the hell out of poor Adso more than once. The abbot of the abbey himself, Abo, and yes, that was way confusing, is definitely more interested in worldly wealth and riches and power than in his spiritual life. The monks Berengar and Adelmo, whose murder is the first of many that William and Adzo investigate, have an illicit homosexual relationship going on before Adele Moe is found murdered. Not so saintly these men of God are they? William of Baskerville is quite a compelling character unto himself. He's a combination of ex-Inquisition world-weary monk, high-level investigative detective, He was massively educated at Oxford and has the ability to see things and make connections well beyond most of us. In fact, he's the first to realize that the murders of the monks at the Abbey are along the themes of the seven deadly sins. Now, if you thought the movie Seven showed just how gross and gruesome the seven deadly sins could be, this book basically tells that film, here, hold my beer. I mean, there's no head in a box at the end but the amount of random body parts and gore that are involved in the murders? Well, all I can say is maybe don't read this while you're eating. This gem of a novel was also the inspiration for my initial graduate thesis. I wanted to do a semiotic analysis of the name of the rose itself. It was, or so I thought, a clever turning of Echo's philosophy back onto him, but it turns out I bit off way more than I could chew. Never take on the master unless you know you can beat him. I could never hope to come close to Echo and his philosophy, but I wrote 90% of the thesis as a love letter to his philosophy. Ultimately, I wrote my master's thesis on something else, and so this version remains incomplete. Occasionally, I add to it in my head. I'm no academic and I never will be, but perhaps one day I will go back and write the damn thesis in honor of Echo and my love for this amazing book. Or, more likely, like what I did now, maybe I'll just cook and it goes on her instead. Now, my personal favorite of all the characters in the book is the monk Salvatore, who is described as resembling a pig and who speaks a very strange composite language, a jargon of ancient and modern languages including Spanish, Latin, French, Italian, and God knows what else. The result is a bizarrely entertaining vernacular all his own. The passage where he offers to make fried cheese for Adso and Brother William exemplifies this. I put an end to his talk and told him that this evening my master wanted to read certain books in his cell and wished to eat up there. I will do, he said. I will do cheese and batter. How is that made? Facilis. You take the cheese before it is too antiquum, without too much salis, and cut into cubes or secut you like. And postea, you put a bit of butiero or lardo to re over the embers. And in it, you put two pieces of cheese, and it, when, when it becomes tenero, zucarum et cinnamon, supra positurum dubis, and immediately take to table because it must be eight caldo caldo. If you have any understanding of basic English and the Romance languages of Spanish, Portuguese, French, Italian, Catalan, or Romanian, You can completely understand what he's saying. I always found the language of Salvatore a charming example of Echo's facility with languages and symbolism. Now, I don't know about you, but eating melted cheese with sugar and cinnamon doesn't exactly make my taste buds go, yippee! So, I poked around my kitchen and came up with this version, which is based on that classic, luscious Italian dish called mozzarella in carrozza. Mozzarella in carrozza literally translates to cheese in a carriage, and the basic idea is that it's mozzarella encased in something. Think of it as like a Monte Cristo made of cheese and deep fried. Now, I don't eat bread much, but the idea of cheese and batter, cheese molded into little balls, dusted in flour, and deep fried, is the same basic concept, so that's what I made. In honor of William Baskerville, also of milk, and the late, great Umberto Eco himself, I present to you deep-fried cheese balls. So here's what you need to make these. You'll need one egg, room temperature, two tablespoonfuls of flour, one tablespoon of Italian breadcrumbs, two teaspoons of ground thyme, two teaspoons of garlic powder, half a cup of shredded mozzarella cheese, half a cup of shredded camembert cheese, half a cup of Parmesan cheese, also shredded, and just olive oil for frying. Nothing fancy. You don't need the extra virgin kind. Just plain old olive oil. So to start, crack the egg into a ramekin. Add your flour and breadcrumbs into another ramekin, and then add the thyme and garlic powder into another ramekin. So you have three bowls next to each other. In another bowl, you wanna mix the three cheeses together, and then you wanna pour in the ground thyme and garlic powder and mix together. Then you wanna form small balls of the cheese herb mixture by rolling them between your palms. Once you're done with all the cheese, you're gonna have roughly a dozen to 15 little balls. You wanna put your happy little cheese balls back into the large bowl and refrigerate them for up to an hour, if not longer. If possible, try to leave them in there for two hours. When you're ready to cook them, take them out of the fridge and then add the olive oil to a large shallow pan and heat over medium-high until the oil shimmers. Dip each cheese ball into the beaten egg first, then into the flour and breadcrumb mixture, and then put it into the hot oil in the pan. You can add about three or four flour-dusted cheese balls into the pan and fry until brown on one side, then flip and fry on the other side until browned. You probably don't wanna cook more than four minutes per side because the cheese will start melting out of the flour and the egg, and you will have an ungodly mess. Dab off the excess olive oil and munch away. Nom nom nom. So good, they are almost ungodly delicious. (laughs) Pardon the pun. So, that's it. Deep-fried balls of cheese. Simple, tasty, and they go really well with drinks or on top of a salad or as a side dish to chicken or beef. Or just snack on them as they are. No one will mind. No one in this house anyway. Well, we've come to the end of yet another episode of Cooking the Books. I hope you enjoyed this one. I know I did. I also hope you remain well and safe. Please, let's all be kind to each other. Let's respect each other. Let's love one another as much as we can. And most importantly, let's eat well. Don't forget to like me on Facebook, follow me on Instagram, or check out my blog, the links to all of which can be found on the show notes. See you soon!